Good morning. Yes, morning. <laughs> morning in Australia, 7.30 a.m. Right on the dot. I've uh, just managed to go and grab a rushed coffee. Scheduled it just fine. Let me retweet the the tweet. Uh, and I know for most of you, a lot of you, <laughs> it's the other end of the day. Good Thursday evening. Um, live. There we go. Post that. That's good. Do not disturb. I did rush home, didn't I? Oh, do not disturb. Beautiful. All right. G'day. Uh, this week, I, I came up with pretty much everything to discuss this week. Um, right at the moment I scheduled this. And I'm sure there's some other stuff, but I, I generally tend to go back and look through my Twitters. And I put a bunch of stuff in here, including some things about ransomware. Uh, and then right as I, I did that, I went and <laughs> looked at my tweets again and saw a really, really interesting thread, which sort of exemplifies what I think the problem is. So I don't know where that's going to go, but I think it's an interesting topic for the day. G'day, Wayne. Wayne's here. Ben is in the morning. Mitch is just Who knows where Mitch is? <laughs> and Rob. Um, mm. Thank you all for joining. Uh, let's start with the sponsor, brand new sponsor this week. That sponsor is SecFence. Now, SecFence has uh, got a webinar that they're promoting here, how to defend against the Evil Gen X 2. Cooper Gretzky of Evil Gen X 2 and Marcin Sazi of SecFence show a tool that counters MFA bypass. Now, I was doing a bit of reading about uh, Evil Gen X 2 just before. Uh, it is fascinating. It is an open source toolkit for phishing. Uh, and it, it's, it's quite interesting. You look at the GitHub repo and it's like, look, this is sort of teaching with some of the problems that we have with MFA bypass. And this is sort of a little bit reminiscent of some of the Genesis market stuff we saw as well, where it's like post auth, post username, password, your second factor, all of that, you still have uh, things like session material or auth tokens, which are set in cookies, they get hijacked, you have problems. And the, the, the GitHub repo is very much like, look, this, these are the problems. Use this to do good things. Don't do bad things, which is the old, the old argument of should we produce lock picking locks for want of a better IRL term. Go and check this out. This looks super interesting. So um, SecFence is uh, talking here about uh, Evil Genix 2 being a sophisticated open source phishing toolkit developed by Kuba Gretzky, we just spoke about, for conducting highly effective man-in-the-middle MITM attacks to steal login credentials and 2FA tokens. It is kind of fascinating, isn't it, where we went, there's a lot of credential stuffing, <laughs> a lot of people logging in with other people's usernames and passwords, we'll make 2FA and it will solve the problem. And then, of course, we started phishing OTPs because you can fish an SMS OTP. Oh, I've got to talk about SMS a moment too. You can fish an SMS OTP. You can fish a soft token from Authy. Uh, so we'll go and use security keys uh, because you can't fish a U2F key. That's the joy of it. But what happens after the UTF key? Well, you have a combination of browser fingerprints and cookies and things like that and the, the whole Genesis market thing again. Secfence User Access Security Broker is a solution designed by Marcin Sazi that enables strong authentication, ID 502 and pass keys at scale and without requiring modifications to existing applications or infrastructure. So big... Thanks to uh, SecFence for their first time on the blog here uh, and their sponsorship of this week. Go and check out the free webinar. Now, I, uh, I thought of something <laughs> as I was saying that. 
for any of you that are in this area of the world, uh, we had an interesting one this week where our second largest telco, Optus, had an outage. Now, Optus, well, Optus is famous because they're our second largest telco. Everyone here knows who Optus is. They're also famous because they got very pwned in September last year. Uh, now, when we say very, very pwned, this is terrible. We, we had this sort of trilogy of really major data breaches in Australia, uh, beginning with Optus. We had Optus, and then we had Medibank, and then we had Latitude Financial. And this is the sort of thing that rising tide lifting all boats, etc., got everyone very aware of how bad our infosec is in Australia, which I think is pretty consistent with everywhere. But we just heard like bam, 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 three things in a row. And at the time, this the CEO got got uh, what's the right word? Lamb, but maybe lambasted is the right word by our Minister for Cybersecurity because CEO said something to the effect of, oh, it's very sophisticated, <laughs> highly sophisticated. Uh, I think the implication there, maybe the state sponsored all the Russians or something, yeah, something like that. And our cybersecurity minister went, no, it wasn't. <laughs> like It was very, very basic, which is, is uh, honesty from politicians is nice. Anyway, the point is, is that the CEO had come out and said some some stupid shit. Well, I guess just it's Australia. We're, we're direct about it. That's some stupid shit uh, and got called on it later on. Now we have this incident where what seems to have happened is a couple of days ago, a bunch of Optus services have just stopped. And I, I think from memory, they stopped pretty early in the morning, like 5 a.m. or something like that. And for the vast bulk of the day, they just didn't work. Now think about a telco and all the things that are connected. Now, I... I hadn't quite joined the dots as to how many things are dependent on a telco. So, for example, one of our banks apparently couldn't send second factor authentication tokens. This is what I thought of when I was talking about SecFans, because they use Optus to send the tokens. So imagine you're trying to log on to your bank and it's like, username, password, yes. Uh, now wait for the SMS. Oh, there's no SMS, so I can't bank. Imagine what that does to individuals and to businesses and so on. And... That was every customer of that bank, regardless of which telco they were using. <clears throat> but then, of course, flip it around the other way. Everyone who was an Optus customer wouldn't have been able to get their OTPs if they were dependent on SMS second factor because they just couldn't receive SMSs. So you couldn't log on to any bank that depended on it or social media website or email provider or, or whatever it is you're using SMS for, which was quite fascinating. Um, now, Scott's here. <clears throat> when, <laughs> a funny story with this, because when Scott came here for my wedding in September last year, and <laughs> I, I remember where we were, because we were sitting in my car, and you're like, oh, I need to get a SIM card here. And I was like, well, why can't you just be like me, or I go to the other side of the world, and I, I pay like $10 a day or something, and I keep my SIM card, and I can still get SMSs, uh, something about England and privacy rights. So <laughs> you're like... I think it's going to get an Optus card, no problems, but you've got to identify yourself or an Optus SIM card. And of course, um, in order to identify yourself, you've got to provide like passport info or something. And I think from memory, it didn't accept your passport, your UK passport. So you're like, hey, Troy, another way you can verify yourself is to use an Australian credit card. Can I use yours? And I'm like, yeah, sure. I'm a good mate. What could go wrong? And next minute, Scott's in the Optus data breach. So uh, with my credit card. <laughs> so thanks, mate. Um, <clears throat> Scott made a point here. No SMS on planes, which is why I would avoid SMS 2FA. I think everyone watching this understands 
many of the problems with SMS 208. And to put it in context, though, I've heard many times people, hopefully not this audience because I think you're smarter, many times people in this industry have said, never use SMS 2FA. It's worse than no 2FA at all. And I'm like, that was, no, you can't do maths. <laughs> it's like one factor plus something else is always going to be more than one. So it, it, it is always a better thing, at least from a security perspective. Now, of course, it does create the risk that we're talking about just here, where if you can't get SMS, <clears throat> it's always going to be better. And that the thing that SMS-based 2FA has going for it that beats every other form of 2FA that, that we practically have is that everybody knows how to use it. Everybody knows how to get an SMS and read the message. And it doesn't matter how technically illiterate you are, you can get an SMS, you can read the message. As soon as you're like, yeah, go and download Authy and scan this QR code and enter the token and make sure it's your recovery code and yada, 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 yada. That goes above the head of a lot of people, which is why the adoption rates are so low. Now, of course, I think we should be doing this, us security people, tech people, uh, and I think we should be doing U2F keys wherever it makes sense. <clears throat> with the caveat again being that I'm getting hammered a lot for U2F keys when I'm downstairs and the U2F keys are in other places in the house. Uh, or we should be using pass keys, but then they're still stored digitally somewhere. And if someone takes over your things, well, well, that's a problem. Yeah, Scott said, it's a little bit like hardware key is greater than uh, one-time password is greater than SMS is greater than nothing, which is pretty much right. Now, Ben says you forgot one. He's probably going to say biometrics or app push. Uh, yeah, and, and then, of course, we've got the problems we have been having at the moment where there's been like SM or second factor spam where someone's trying to get into your account and they're just like hammer, 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 and you just keep getting all of these messages and eventually you're like, ah, oh, stuff it. I'll just accept which is why we're now also seeing the number in a bunch of the implementations like Microsoft Authenticator, where you've got to enter the number that's on the screen as well, so you can't just push a button. And right about here, every time I have this discussion, I get to the point where it's like, it's a good industry to be in at the moment, isn't it? <laughs> because of all the problems. Mm. James says, Discord doesn't seem to have security keys. What gives? I'm finding there's, there's a lot of places that will do some form of whether we call it 2FA or MFA, because there's an argument that if everything is on the device anyway and you have the device, well, then it's not really 2FA because it's just the one. For, anyway, bunch of services that don't do security keys. Uh, or there's a bunch of services that are configured and you set up multiple forms of second factor and you have both the stronger one and the weaker one. So look out for that one too. <laughs> Go and do your regular sort of personal security tune-up. Uh, yeah, anyway, going back to Scott's point here about SMSs on planes, I think that's uh, that's that's very valid. And the, the other thing is traveling. In fact, it's one of the reasons why with uh, with Australia, with um, with one of our telcos that I'm, I'm with here, we can pay $10 a day when we travel and get global roaming. And you get a gigabyte of data, and if you smash through your gigabyte, you pay another $10. And occasionally, it means I pay $20 in a day, pre-tax, <laughs> But I get to keep my SIM card and I don't have to go and borrow Scott's credit card to sign up to another random telco on the other side of the world or something like that. So that's um, that's advantageous. I like being able to roam with that. Kevin, Kevin's in cloudy Sydney. It wasn't cloudy here and then it was by the time I went to go and get coffee. Um, 
George says there are still Aussie banks without 2FA in the first place. The, the, you're right. The implication of what you said is that it creates vulnerabilities and risk by not having second factor. But I wrote something about banks years ago where I said, look, um, banks often use very weak passwords. And we've all seen bank password criteria. Sometimes it's just a pin. And that looks terrible. But what's different to the vast majority of websites that authenticate you, banks have a huge amount of fraud control behind the scenes that you don't see. In fact, I remember sitting with the CISO of a, of a bank I'd done a talk at, uh, and this bank was in the news for having like shitty password rules. And he just kind of laughed and went, there's so much other stuff that goes on behind the scenes. It's not immediately obvious. Put it this way. When was the last time we saw a successful credential stuffing attack against a bank? I can't think of one I've seen. I certainly can't think of one I've seen in Australia. But only the other day, we're talking about 23andMe, and there's a gazillion other predecessors to that where we've seen successful credential stuffing attacks. So it, it does seem to be a harder problem. Uh, what else? James says, someone just added AI detection for push 2FA spam. Oh, interesting. So... Did they do that with AI? Are they using the AI to detect if there's AI? Uh, let's just call it code. Scott says, now I use an app called Nomad. I can just buy an eSIM when I land in a country. It's awesome running dual SIMs in. That's not a bad idea. I'd be tempted to do, to do that. See, I'd like to be able to, I wonder if I can get like inbound calls and SMSs without paying any extra money, but then do all my data roaming with something like that. Many countries I can roam to, but not AU and US, which are the main problems. Yeah. Rob Davis says, uh, have you heard of Lusher? They state your personal information is processed by Lusher based on the legitimate interest of itself and its customers to engage in direct marketing vomit emoji. That <laughs> does sound crap, doesn't it? That sounds like AI-generated bullshit. Kevin says, I wish bank could send me an email with every login to internet banking. I think there's a there's a really good discussion here around when are the right times to challenge and notify. Uh, now, when I think about it, and I'm trying to recall. I think the last time I set up my bank on my mobile device, I did get a notification. But when I log into the bank, I don't get a notification. Now, I'm, I'm talking about the when I log in from a device that's already set up. I'm pretty sure on the website I don't get it either. Uh, yesterday I had to pay some money to a bank account I'd never paid to before. So I picked up my mobile device. Um, I face ID'd my way in. I think it needed a password too, but I face ID'd my way into one password. So it all just becomes a big blur of <laughs> face ID. Didn't get any notification. It was fine, but it's a trusted device. It's already been installed. I've already received the first notification. Set up the new bank account. And then it said we need to do a second factor uh, verification. And it was an SMS, which is very typical. For the first time, I set up that new account. And then when I paid money to the account for the first time, uh, I think I got another email, but I got some other form of notification. And I guess where I'm going with this is that there are there are times when there should be a challenge presented in order for verifications. There are times when there should be a notification. And I think deciding between the two and doing them at the right time is really important. There are loads of times... It's a little bit like the argument with uh, long-lived session cookies or auth tokens. Like, how long should you be logged in for after you first enter it? Now, if you think about Facebook, say, 
It's like you Facebook your way in or authenticate to Facebook. I can't remember the last time I entered credentials for my Facebook account on a device already logged in. That's fine. I think about other things, uh, like we use Zendesk for have I been pwned tickets. Every single freaking day, they want me to log back in. And then they regularly want me to enter my second factor as well. And it's a pain in the ass. It's too much. It, it is absolutely too much. And you could make the argument, well, the risk is high because you've got a whole bunch of customer details and things in there. But I, I just don't know that every single day is the right amount. Seems excessive. Pisses people off. Uh, James says, fraud control, just caught one of my dad's accounts before I'd even posted a couple of weeks ago. So my dad keeps um, keeps accidentally entering his Gmail credentials into the wrong places. Now, <laughs> I'm sympathetic to and He's fairly technical as well. He was a pilot. Uh, he's retired now, uh, but he was used to dealing with complex things. And later on, he showed me what he'd done. And he'd gone to a website to buy a battery for his model boat. And the website offered different ways to authenticate. Now, we know the difference between these, but think about it from my father's perspective. Um, Mid-70s, not doing a lot of technical things anymore. All he wants to do is buy a bloody battery. And he goes there, and, and the website is like, log in with email, log in with Gmail, log in with Facebook, and, and you see where this is going now, right? It's like, are you logging in with a social provider, or are you logging in with credentials uh, that, that are unique to that website? And inevitably what he's done is he's, he's ended, somehow managed to enter his Google credentials into the email and password box for the website itself. So he's literally just handed his credentials to a third party. Now, he has second factor enabled anyway, which is good, but you would also hope that that second factor wasn't, or rather that that third party wasn't actually logging the, but you've just given it to them, you, you know, you've got to work on that assumption. And then somehow he manages to then end up back at Google and not know what his password is and then reset his password. And because I'm like the security person on his account, I get an email. So anyway, I got to the point with both my parents where I said, I'm taking away all your login privileges. <laughs> it's me the, me, the kid, the son. And I'm setting up with Google Advanced Protection and I'm giving you YubiKeys. So because email is the keys to the kingdom, because that's where you, not only do you have all your personal stuff, but that's where you reset the passwords for all the other accounts. Now they've got Google Advanced Protection on, which means the only way they get into their account is they need the username and password, which is in their one password instance, and you need the YubiKey. And you only really need that when you're setting up a new device. It's extraordinarily rare to need it outside of that. So the discussion we had was like, look, I'm going to get all of your things set up. You're authenticated to everything. You can get your email. You can watch your YouTube. You can do all of this. It will be fine. No one else is going to be able to log in without these keys or a recovery process that Google doesn't talk about publicly, which I believe is very laborious by design, right? So I've lost my UB keys. How do I get back into my account? So if you're traveling, mum and dad, and I'm not there, you can't get in because I have the UB keys here just to make sure that you don't accidentally screw things up and get socially engineered into resetting your account or something like that. I reckon that's a good model. So far, touch wood, it's been good. And uh, Scott's saying that's exactly what he does with the theme. Second SIM data only. Primary SIM is calls and SMS. Uh, what did you call that? Nomad. Um, 
but doesn't work well i don't have to worry about it not working in australia it doesn't work in the us i have no us plans coming up um, uh nomad app roaming sim Let's see if we can actually find it travel like a local nomad best e-sim for travelers all right i'll go check that out later on thanks that mate now while scott's here as well we discussed uh very impromptu today doing a joint weekly video next week on Scott, maybe you can just explain it in the text message. The things to protect Europeans that are happening with certificates and quacks and... Uh, Scott, pitch it. Um, pitch it in the chat. We're going to figure out how to do this both together next week in some way. Uh, Scott's, Scott's building his head against the wall. Scott's been involved in this for a long time as well. I think he has some really good insights on this. I've just been reading this from afar uh reveling in the freedom that we have in australia not to have to deal with this crap um mm. as scott said government mandated root ca on your devices so yeah anyway we're going to do that next week we're going to figure out the best way to do that so that we're both on camera and scott can explain the whole thing i would like to learn a bit more about it i know he's written about it the other day uh, and i know he has traveled to places to talk about it to important people as well Apparently that didn't work so well, mate, so I'm not sure how good a job you did of it. But, you know, here we are. Mandated by the EU but applied to global population. Why do you keep doing that? How does the EU keep making laws and then go, everyone's got to follow it? Uh, anyway. All right, we'll talk about that next week. Uh, what else is happening here? Tech Nature Ash says, two logs and email should be sent to customer when someone logs, logs in or... Someone in the bank accesses, views, up, updates my data. Yeah, that's interesting. Should you be notified when someone in the bank views your data? I, I think I think that would be a hard argument to make because there are lots of times when that needs to happen legitimately. I think that it'd get, it'd get very noisy. Also, are there other potential privacy controls where the bank needs to be able to view information that you have provided them without necessarily going back the other way? I don't know. Odd one. Um, <laughs> Kevin's saying what I've done with my mum and dad is parental controls the other way. Uh, yep, that's exactly what it is. Uh, so far it works. Works really well. Uh, Wayne, Wayne says, uh, was it that coming to... Wait, is that coming to the UK? He's obviously talking about government-mandated root CAs. Uh, well, it sounds like it's coming to everywhere, but that's what Scott said. Um, Rob, do you have a smart meter? Does it change your behavior around IT? Uh, now, I assume, Rob, you're, you're talking about a smart uh, power meter. Um, there's always a, a, like a 10-second delay between me saying stuff and you hearing it. Just tell me if that's, uh, if that's not what you meant, but I'm going to start answering that question. I've got a bunch of power meters in, uh, in different parts of the house. Um, why is the same warning? Your stream's current bitrate is lower than recommended bitrate. We recommend that you use a stream bitrate of 6,800. I haven't seen that before. Okay. If something was wrong, people would have told me by now. That normally happens pretty quickly. All right. So uh, in terms of the, the power meters, I've got a bunch of uh, smart plugs. In fact, there's a couple in the wall over there for a project that's been in progress for months and months, which is... It's meant to be my big sock TV that goes up on the wall and has all the graphs and charts and things like that. Um, so, so that's uh, that's there. I've, I I tried recently to figure out why I had a very 
I couldn't figure out the cyclical pattern of power usage based on our energy provider. So I log onto the dashboard. We use a ridiculous amount of power in this house. And I had thought a lot of it was because it's a large house. Both Charlotte and I work from here. We've always got the aircon on at this time of year anyway. Lots of computers and things like that. But I couldn't quite reconcile the cyclical pattern. And what I, what I learned once I started putting smart plugs all over the place is that a lot of it is from the pool pump. Uh, and it's not just the pool pump, but then there's a secondary pump to pump water up onto the roof so it gets heated via the sun through a whole bunch of black piping in a poor man's solar <laughs> implementation and pump back into the pool. And that was using a heap. I do have on my to-do list actually doing proper solar because we're in Australia, uh, like photovoltaic solar. We've just had so much stuff to do at the house this, this year. I haven't just dreaded the thought of doing anything more. But that will be a 2024 project, and then I'll get to measure everything properly. All right, let's move on. Talk about the big thing this week, <laughs> nearly half an hour into the show. Um, LinkedIn. Now, it was one of these ones where someone popped up, uh, must have been Monday-ish, and said, have you seen the latest LinkedIn data set? You know, it's like millions of records. Um, and I, you know, I'm going to try and find the actual hacking forum, refer to it as a popular hacking forum, uh, website here. If I just go to history and then I type the name, in fact, if I just type LinkedIn, it's going to find it as well as all my LinkedIn history. But, uh, you know, someone sort of pointed this out and said, look, there's, uh, a dump here. It says, um, LinkedIn database, 2023, 2.5 million records. Uh, it's in CSV format. The person who posted it said, there is a lot of important people like Gov and stuff like that in the DB with email. Now, of course, this is one of these hacking forums where everyone is anonymous. This is a person that, that does have previous form. Um, okay, you know, fair enough. <laughs> we'll go and have a look at it. And when I pulled it down, I mean, normally the first thing I do is I, I run a regex over it, pull out all the email addresses. And there are about 5.8 million unique email addresses. And, and the next thing is to try and figure out what it is. And it's said on here, this person has updated the original post, but originally, oh no, it still says it here. This one is similar to my Twitter data scrapped, they mean scraped, but scrapped from LinkedIn plus 2023. So that the representation here is it is data that has been scraped from LinkedIn. And I start looking through this and there's like 10 million rows or something here that many of the profiles span multiple rows because the line returns that are in the actual profile are on LinkedIn, once it's been scraped, the line returns have gone through to the CSV file as well. So maybe some encoding there <laughs> next time would really help the processing. And I'm spinning through and I'm trying to figure out what, like, what is this? Is it literally what is represented? Is it data that's been scraped off LinkedIn or is it something else? Because very often people post sets of data and they go, it's this thing. And then you look at it and you go, nah, hang on, it's not. Perfect example, yesterday, day before, someone sent me something and they said, this is Amazon India. 20 million email addresses from Amazon India. And I'm like, okay, well, that would be interesting if it was Amazon India. And I start looking at it and very quickly I figure out it's not Amazon India. And I think the, I'll tell you the way the person phrased this without telling you who they were. Uh, this is in my messages in here somewhere. 
49.7 million database Amazon.in leak. Compressed 1.7 gig, uncompressed 8.17 gig. Have you come across this data breach or similar? These propaganda groups are promoting too much of trash. <laughs> Hence wanted to check whether you've come across this. Um, so I go through and I look at it and it, it literally, I think it took about three minutes to figure out that this was the India Mart data breach that we need to have up in phone a couple of years ago. Old data, repurposed. So the point is people often fabricate this stuff because reasons, you know, they've all got reasons. So I'm looking at this data from LinkedIn and I couldn't, I couldn't sort of empirically see anything wrong with it. Um, you know, like you extract the number of email addresses, seems reasonable, uh, glance through the email addresses, uh, look feasible. But the thing that started to jump out at me is when someone had had multiple roles, which is what you put in LinkedIn, it's like I had this job and then I had that job and that job. For each one of those jobs, there was an email address. And I thought that's, that seems unusual to have all of those email addresses in a way that could be scraped, mapped to the same person. And then I saw the pattern. And the, the, the pattern was that every email address was always first name, dot last name, at company.com or whatever it may be, you know, at domain name. Legitimate domain names too. And that's a very common pattern, right? Uh, that was the pattern I had when I was back in Pfizer, I was troy.hunt at Pfizer.com. But it's not the pattern everywhere, not consistently. But when I'm looking at the data, it was always the pattern. And I think the thing that sort of tipped me off to begin with is, you know, I was looking at like one person's row and this was a, this was a, a lady in Australia and my, my eyes just sort of fell on the .com that I used somewhere because that's what we look for here. And like, isn't it fascinating that the five different companies she's worked for, <clears throat> she had the same exact alias at every one. What are the chances of that? Yeah, like it's not a, it's not a one in a million sort of thing, but it just seemed, it just seemed unlikely. So I started drilling down into this and <clears throat> what I eventually work out is that, yes, there is a bunch of data scraped off LinkedIn. It could have been enumerated in all sorts of different ways. But then someone has obviously taken the companies that this person worked at and has guessed the email addresses. And I know that they're guesses because when I, I sort of did this a couple of different ways, uh, I went to my inbox and I had a look at Pluralsight. A lot of emails from people at Pluralsight. And what I realized from Pluralsight is that it is first name dash last name at Pluralsight.com. I go to this data set and every email address in there is first name dot last name. I then go through and I have a look at some of the roles this lady had and I look at, let's just call them acmecore.com.au. I say, okay, well, let's go to acmecore.com.au in Have I Been Pwned and see how the email addresses in there are structured. And they're completely different. So the email addresses are fabricated. Now, well, actually, I'll rephrase this. The email addresses are constructed. Now, if they're constructed, some of them are going to be right. Because if you worked at Pfizer and there wasn't another Troy Hunt there before you, you would be troy.hunt at Pfizer.com. But if you worked at Pluralsight, it'd be wrong. If you worked the places this lady worked, it'd be wrong. But some of them would be right. And you also can't change the fact that this person did work for that company and their personal data has been exposed and associated to that company. It's just the email address that's wrong. So there was enough legitimate stuff in there that I went, all right, let's load the data. 
So I went in and have a been pwned. <clears throat> I didn't send a lot of notifications to individuals because individuals that go and sign up to have a been pwned, there's now we're just about to tick over 4.7 million based on the little Lemetric display on my desk. They're real email addresses. They need to be an exact match to the email address in the breach. So I think out of the 5.8 million that I originally loaded, there are about 1,800 uh, individual subscribers. Uh, very low hit rate. Very, very low hit rate. That's about a point, point 0.1 of a percent. Or was it less than that? Uh, that would be 70,000, 57,000. That would be 1%. 5,700 would be 0.1%. It's about 0.03%. So it's not very much at all. But tens of thousands of people monitoring domains because it doesn't matter if the email address is real or not. If it's at a domain.com and you're monitoring domain.com, well, then you get a notification. So that went in. Bunch of notifications went out, particularly to people monitoring domains. We got absolutely flooded with support tickets on Have I Been Pwned from people having various questions because, of course, now when you've got really big domains, there's a subscription involved. And then later, later that day... I just got to read the tweet. Was it later? That, oh, no, it might have been overnight. Um, overnight, the person responsible for dumping that first lot of data, I must have said somewhere publicly, it's like, well, I got absolutely smashed by that. <laughs> the person responsible dumped more data and mentioned me. And they said, um, where's the mention of me? Here you go. Hello, hacker forum name. First off, I want to apologize to Troy Hunt. <laughs> he spent hours working in the first LinkedIn leak. It as a partial file, both file partial and complete as zipped in diff files. So this is the full data. Here's 35 million rows with 12 gigabytes of uncompressed data. So this person's turned around and gone, sorry, Troy, you wasted your time. Here's a whole bunch of extra data. And suddenly the 5.7 million had another 14 million to add. So I ended up, this must have been Wednesday now, I ended up on Wednesday updating the breach with the extra 14 million, taking it to nearly 20 million. And then that's that's frustrating because the individuals have already notified, the 1,800, that's fine. I think I sent another 6,000 notifications to other people that are in there. But what about the people monitoring domains? I, by default in the past, what I've done is just sent domain notifications, if I had updated a breach, I just sent domain notifications to uh, anyone who was monitoring domains that were only in the, the updated corpus, not the original corpus. But for this one, because it was so significantly different, I mean, it was literally like nearly four times the size. And of course, that changes the counts on so many of the domains. So I could have emailed, let's say, Fragrance, like I emailed someone at Pfizer if they're monitoring it and said, you know, you've got 100 people in this, this incident and now it's 600 people. That's a substantial difference. So I sent all the notifications again. I think I sent 60,000 notifications when that went out and then got smashed by more tickets. So a massive portion of the week has gone on figuring out what the hell is in this data, writing a blog post about it so I could actually explain it properly, loading the data, responding to tickets from people with a gazillion different questions about it. And uh, and that, now here we are. <laughs> so. Uh, now, James says, explain scraping versus a hack to a 70-year-old. Now, um, I did write a blog post some time ago after we sort of saw an uptick in scraping about is scraping hacking, is there a difference? Uh, is it a data breach if the data is scraped? And, and what, it, 
What it amounted to is I, I think I think people get very infatuated with terms and a, a, probably a better way of looking at this is what is the expectation of individuals and organisations when their data is scraped? Um, to put it more specifically, how do you feel about it? How does it make you feel when your data is scraped? And most people are pissed. They're pissed because they did not want their data used in that way. So for example, they give it to LinkedIn and yes, they do make it public in just the same way as they make a whole bunch of their Facebook data public because that's how you connect with people. Now, whether you like or dislike that whole thing doesn't matter. The point is that this is the way people use it. This is the way they expect it to be used. So when their data gets taken and used in a fashion that they did not expect, that's what upsets them. So my view is, is that the definition of breach covers that because it is data that has been taken by an unauthorized party and used in a way in which it was not intended to be used when it was provided to the service. That also means the providers of these services have got a duty of care to not have it scraped, but that's extraordinarily hard. You know, LinkedIn's business model is dependent on having information provided by individuals which is made accessible to other individuals. So how do you make it accessible to the right people and not the wrong people? And that's a parallel discussion to someone went through and fabricated a bunch of email addresses. So, so what we end up with is a whole bunch of data which did get scraped from LinkedIn at some point in time, which then got in, enriched, air quoting for people listening later, with a whole bunch of fabricated email addresses. Strange, isn't it? How do we get here? James says, I was doing OSINT on a company and found three different patterns there. Seems like they switched it up a lot. Okay, within the one company, yeah, and then of course this is possible too. Companies can, it's it's an it's a it's a text, it's a text string. Like your alias can be whatever you want it to be. Okay, oh, Stefan's here. Good, Stefan. Um, okay, so that was uh, <laughs> the scraped and fake LinkedIn data. Now I just on a whim jotted something down here about ransomware leaks uptick. I feel like. Reading through my mentions, my socials, all the rest of it, there seems to be a lot more, anecdotally, a lot more ransomware where data is getting dumped lately. A lot more. This year, the last six months in particular, it just feels like so many cases. Now, we know ransomware has been around. Originally, I think 1989, AIDS Trojan was like the first ransomware, and you got it from a floppy disk, and then you sent a cashier's check to Panama. Uh, and then go back I remember where I was when I was still living in Sydney so go back let's call it 20 2013 14 15 uh, a lot of ransomware infecting machines encrypting files pay some money and we'll give you the key and you decrypt your files and then of course it's pivoted to the point where ransomware is not just attacks against availability where things get encrypted but attacks against confidentiality where the data gets taken and hackers say pay the money and you get your files back and we won't leak your data if you don't pay the money, we'll leak your data. And the thing that got me um, got me thinking about it today when I put it on this this schedule is as I was reading through my Twitter thread, just the number of things in the last week that I've posted related to ransomware. Now, Boeing was the one that popped out at me. So Boeing was kind of interesting because that appeared, that, and incidentally, there's a couple of really good accounts here that tweet a lot of stuff related to data breaches, ransomware, and so on. Um, the one that brought my attention, the LinkedIn stuff, Dark Web Informer, all one word, at Dark Web Informer, is very handy. Another one that's been quite useful is uh, Falcon Feedzio, that's Falcon Feed SIO, 
It's been really useful. Uh, I'm sure I'll see a couple of others as I spin through my list of things that I have RT'd. Um, now, the Boeing one was interesting because Boeing popped up. must have been about a week or so ago. Popped up on, uh, this looks like the Lockbit ransomware site here. And everyone was like, oh, holy shit. It's like, it's Boeing. They build big, important things. And then it disappeared. And people were like, well, does that mean they paid the ransom? Uh, and now it's popped up again a couple of days ago. And it's saying that uh, there are five days, 28 minutes until publication. So I guess that leaves a few days from now. Let's call it weekend early next week. Uh, the deadline is the 13th of November, actually. So three days from now. There's a UTC time there all the way down to the second. I don't know how they come out with that. This ransomware says, uh, Boeing ignored our warnings. We will start to publish data. In first batch, we will publish just around four gigabytes of sample data, most recent. In a few days, we'll publish the databases if we do not see positive cooperation from Boeing and we'll keep going with the juicy, their term not mine, the juicy data. In addition to the data, those databases will be published uh, and then they've just got a whole bunch of, um, looks like file names here, and I suspect row counts. The first one with 46 billion. Crikey. All available data will be published. And we know this is what they do too, right? We know ransomware crews do this because they just do not care. Now, when I say they do not care, they do not care about the implications, which got me looking at something that came up just this morning, and I have retweeted. This is a tweet from uh, Matt Johnson. He's at Matt J. I have met Matt before as well. Good guy. On Twitter. Uh, now, his thread, without reading the whole thing, because he's gone into a bit of detail here, begins by saying, a plastic surgeon's office got hacked. Patient's info and nude photos before slash after surgery was stolen. A bunch of the women are suing. Buckle up and let's look at what's going on. And then it goes on and on. But obviously... The nature of a plastic surgery is going to take before and after photos of whatever part of the body they're doing the work on. Now, any part of it is personal and private and sensitive. Some parts arguably more than others. So he goes on here. Uh, the FBI is on it, but the damage is done. The hackers' taunts and threats continue as they post stolen data on a site with a Russian domain. Oh, man, that's just terrible, isn't it? The clinic's response, a written statement expressing devastation and commitment to work with authorities. But for the victims, words are not enough. They want action. They want protection. They want justice. But the clinic, without knowing any more detail than what I just read on Matt's tweets here, the clinic is the corporate victim here as well. I mean, no, no one wants to get hacked with ransomware and have their customer details leaked. But I, I feel very sympathetic for organizations that are the corporate victims of ransomware. And then they're targeted, not just by the hackers, but then by the customers trying to sue them as well. And of course, there's a whole discussion around how reasonable were the security controls? Did they let a whole bunch of things lapse? Uh, he goes on. The class action lawsuit. I hate class action lawsuits. Mm. Did not do a, the class action lawsuit claims the surgery did not do enough to implement adequate and reasonable cybersecurity procedures and protocols necessary to protect, which is obviously it wasn't sufficient, but was it reasonable if you go back and look at it through the lens of the day? Uh, there is a point at which you have reasonable security that someone will exceed if they're sufficiently motivated and well resourced. Uh, 
What do I keep saying? Good industry to be in, right? So we're seeing this stuff over and over and over again. Someone, uh, someone who seems to have been the first party to ransomware against a bank in, let's just say, a, a relatively remote part of the world, sent me a substantial amount of data uh, this week, which I need to look at. Looks like they've been trying to shake down the bank. I have been chatting with the bank. And the discussion with the bank effectively boiled down to, have you notified your customers? If so, could you please show me the disclosure notice so that I know how to deal with this? Um, and then the cricket started. <laughs> All heard is crickets. Maybe I'll follow them up again after this. Go, hey, about that thing where like hundreds of gigabytes of your customer data got ripped off. Have you let them know? Because it sounds like they're not done disclosure. Anyway, part of where I'm going with this, and I've spoken on this before, is I suspect, and maybe this bank is a good example, I suspect the disclosure of organizations who are the corporate victims of ransomware, their disclosure to the individuals impacted is fairly lacking. And I'll give you a good example. This bank where someone sent me data looks to be an extraordinarily large number of emails, like .email files. Is that bank going to notify all of the people in those emails? Do they even, I mean, what if they've had an email discussion with someone about a, potentially opening an account and some personal information has been shared, but then they haven't gone and opened the account? Does that person get told that their data and their personal info has just been disclosed in a breach? I'm going to say almost certainly no. Um, it's, it's a messy one. It's a messy one, but I would like to have the capability to index that stuff. I, th I think that would be really, really useful for people to know. Unconscious also, it does throw, in this case, the bank under the bus, because imagine you're some rando, <laughs> some rando, some person who's not a customer, and you get a notification saying, this bank has your data, it was in a breach, and you're going to be like, well, the bank never told me. Well, what do you do next? You're going to unleash fury at the bank. And this is what happens every time people find themselves in a data breach where they haven't been told. There is always a proportion that loses their shit, understandably, at the institution involved. So if I start indexing this stuff, that's inevitably going to happen. Hmm. Kevin says, just came to my mind that poor Optus customers might be contacted by bad guys and get convinced to share their bank account as we want to refund you money for the outage. I think the only saving grace there, Kevin, is that when that breach happened last year, it was only about 10,000 records that were leaked publicly. I think it was like 10,200. And if you remember, someone posted it to the same hacking forum where this LinkedIn stuff was just posted, or rather the, the predecessor of it. Uh, and then they apologized and I think went to their room to think about what they'd done. But anyway, that like the whole corpus of 11 million people or whatever it was never went out there. Now, that said, about half, the adult population of Australia seems to have an Optus account. So if you were just like spamming.com.au emails, you'd get a bunch of Optus people anyway. Stefan says, Troy, has the smoke detector stopped yelling? So I sent Stefan a video yesterday, and I shared some photos a little while ago about our kitchen. Anyway, the kitchen's done. We got one of those borer induction tops with an extractor built into the middle of it. And we, we had this, I had this idea, <laughs> which was to like make a teppanyaki thing last night. So we got one of these like double-sized double teppanyaki plates. Uh, the borer has got four different areas, but you can join two of them together so it becomes one area. And you're meant to have like a, a garlic butter to cook a lot of the teppanyaki stuff. And it's 
the amount of smoke was crazy. I should post the video. The amount of smoke was crazy. I sent it to Stefan. Uh, we had all the doors and windows open. All the nest smoke detectors were going off. Uh, it was great. We had a really good time. So, yes, they've stopped yelling. The house is clean again, which is good. Um, okay, what's next? Let me do the last thing. Uh, and then... Um, Hey, Scott, if you're still around after that, I might give you a, give you a quick call. So, so don't disappear unless you're going to bed. This is relevant to Stefan as well because he's been doing a bunch of work around this too. Rolling to serverless SQL Azure. So we're, geez, in, in about three and a bit weeks, we're going to hit 10 years of have I been pwned. And one of the core reasons I built the service in the first place is because I wanted to build some stuff on cloud. And this was modern cloud where it wasn't like just pick up all your stuff and put it in a VM on the cloud, but like cloud-first paradigms, our platform as a service paradigms, the Azure app service, table storage, things like this. And, uh, and all of that worked, obviously, <laughs> worked out really well. But um, what ended up happening over the course of time is, you know, we've had like a decade of, of progress uh, and we, we've had better tools and better ways of doing things. So I've been gradually migrating things from platforms of service to more serverless architectures. So using Azure functions for all of the main APIs, using Cloudflare workers to run on the edge. So all opponent passwords run through Cloudflare workers. Uh, and that's been fantastic. But, you know, that's, that's the app tier, right? The data tier itself, I guess you could argue, table storage was always serverless, but there's also been a relational database. There has been a SQL database to do relational database-y things. So when you sign up for notifications, when I'm processing a lot of data, when you do domain searches, all of that runs in a relational database. But that was a fixed size SQL Azure instance. And more recently, there has been the release of a SQL serverless version. And Steph and I were doing a lot of chatting about would it make sense to roll over there? Particularly as we started to talk about rolling all of the billions of records in table storage into SQL Azure, which is progressing. Now, I've spoken about that before, so I won't go back into the whole story about why I want to do that. But as we we're looking at it, it's like, well, you know, how are we going to scale the whole thing? You know, I'm going to look at some of my stats now <laughs> as I'm talking. Say, so what size SQL instance would we need? Could we just roll to serverless? Now, I did... Uh, I did test this, so I used another database. I think I might have used like the Hack Yourself First database that, that Scott and I run the, the workshops from. So I did test this, rolled that to serverless. It was a very frictionless process. It's like literally just going into your Azure dashboard, changing the, changing the instance from, you know, whatever DTU size it was before into serverless, and then just specifying the number of V cores you want. So what you can do is serverless. Let me go and explain this using the correct nomenclature whoops sql databases there we go i'm going to go into my have i been pwned database just here i'm going to go into compute and storage and somewhere in here i can set the scale so what we did is we rolled to a general purpose which is the most budget friendly service tier there is also a hyperscale service tier which is then backed by a whole bunch of ssds and other things which we believe are in excess of what we actually need Set it to serverless, and then you set the number of vCores you want. And you have a range, a min vCore, max vCore. And what you get then is you get a charge, which is a cost per vCore per second. Now, this is 0 0.000239 Aussie <laughs> dollars per vCore per second. 
So as you add more V cores, obviously your cost goes up. And it's serverless, so it should spin more V cores up as it needs it. Now we rolled this over the other day, uh, last weekend actually, and it's um, it was great. The rollover went really, really smoothly. I did purge a whole bunch of logs and other crap that frankly were just excessive and we didn't need, so I massively trimmed down the size of the database first, rolled it over, uh, resized the database so it's a bit smaller, and now we're running with a maximum of four V cores and a minimum of half a V core. One of my complaints, for anyone listening that has any control over this, is that if I want to have a maximum of, say, eight V cores, then I've got to have a minimum of one V core. So if you want to, in, in a perfect world, you just completely stretch your range out so you could have as few as necessary and as many as necessary. But if I want to have a max of eight V cores, I have to double my min V core, which effectively doubles my cost if it's sitting there just running at, at idle most of the time. So I've sort of been tweaking this and playing with it a little bit. The, the graphing is actually pretty good. So I can see, for example, let's see the last day. Uh, oh, here we go. So the sum of the app CPU for this database is 59,610. So I have used 59,610 vCore seconds. So if you multiply that out by 0 0.002, whatever, whatever it was, you end up with the amount for compute. You then pay amount for storage. I think that that storage amount at the moment is about 23 bucks a month for 100 gigabytes. This amount of, of compute, uh, I, I think might be a single digit dollar a day price, which seems pretty good. I can see compute utilization, which shows me a percentage of, of available resources being used. And it's what have we averaged? We've averaged, why does it say 4% when every line is like somewhere between 0 and 3%? We've averaged not very much, <laughs> which is good. <laughs> so when it's spinning up, it's absolutely seamless. I'm not seeing any problems there. I've seen a couple of things where performance was just way, way faster, particularly breach processing. I shared some of that with you the other day, Stefan. I have seen a couple of things that have been very slow as well, but I'm, I'm just not sure whether that's because of going serverless or, or some other reason. But so far, everything I've been able to like empirically measure, this seems to be fantastic. When I do need more than the four V calls uh, at a time, you can move the sliders, both the max and the min, uh, and stuff just, just adjusts, which is actually really cool. So early indications are this is super, super cool. So as we sort of talk about rolling all of the data from table storage into SQL Azure, I've got a lot more confidence now that when we do that, we're not going to, um, we're not going to create an environment where either performance is going to completely suck or <laughs> my bill is going to be shocking. So I, th I think we're on track there. Um, Stefan saying switch was amazingly smooth. Yes, it was. Uh, Scott says, if it's serverless, what does it run on? Runs on servers, mate. Um, <laughs> Stefan says it felt too smooth. Like it's quiet, too quiet. Uh, James says, in a breach happens, have I been pwned in the news, server on fire? Well, and, and but this has sort of been part of the, yeah, I was going to say game, but I think game's a reasonable thing. Part of the game is like, how do you make this as big as possible with the lowest possible overhead and like as elastic as possible such that it can stretch out and change? Um. At the moment, if Have I Been Pwned was in the news and a gazillion people came along, there's what really hits the database, the SQL database, is when people sign up for notifications or do domain searches. 
uh, and that's a small portion of the overall traffic. The vast bulk of the traffic hits functions, serverless, runs on servers, <laughs> and then that hits table storage under that. The, the question that we've got to answer for ourselves now is that if that model rolls to SQL Server and we suddenly have you know, 20 million people in a day come to the site and all start doing searches and it hits the function API and then it hits a SQL database and it does a SQL search, what does that do to performance? And I don't quite know. <laughs> this this is a kind of the, like the little scary bit about it. I don't quite know. But particularly the bits that are publicly facing and free, if it doesn't work perfectly, what do you want to do? Ask for your money back? <laughs> like it's part of the joy of a pet project. And even though it obviously has become a much bigger thing over the years, I feel like there's a lot more leeway to experiments as well. Steph says, would be amazing to move everything over <laughs> to .NET 8 someday for even better performance. Yeah, we should do that. We should add that to our list. All right, folks, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap that up there because we've been going for almost on an hour now. Uh, thanks for, for joining in. I think that ransomware stuff is the one that just keeps me thinking. We'll see if I can come up with some other ideas for that. And, uh, and Scott, I'll ping you separately. See you, folks.